Hello and welcome to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. My name is Anna Adima, I am a PhD candidate at the University of York and today I will be joined by Jessica Albrecht. Jessica is a first-year PhD student in the study of religion at the University of Heidelberg. Her research interests lie in the interrelation of feminism, religion and esotericism in the 19th and 20th centuries with a regional focus on Sri Lanka. Jessica holds a Master's in Gender History, as well as in South Asian Languages. She's also a co-founder and editor of Engender, the international and interdisciplinary postgraduate journal on gender research. Today, Jessica will be talking to us about her doctoral research, and we do hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Hi Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you on and to listen to your fascinating research. Yeah, hi Anna, uh, thank you very much for having me here. I'm very looking forward to giving you your presentation. Okay, awesome. So I guess we can just jump right in and listen to what you have to say about your PhD. Yeah, so my short presentation today is based on the PhD research I have was able to conduct so far. And um, the title of the presentation could kind of be like education and religion colonially entangled. So first of all, as a historian of religion, especially looking at colonial developments, there's one society which automatically pops into the center of my research, namely the Theosophical Society. The Theosophical Society was founded in 1875 in New York. Um, by the Russian-German Helena Petrovna Blavatsky and the US American Colonel, Colonel Henry Steele Orcott. They both met in spiritualist circles, but they soon wanted to found their own society, which would focus on the, what they called occult religion um, as a combination of science and religion. Science was then a newly developed field like in the 19th century, and it was seen as an opponent of religion. So the Theosophical Society, as well as other esoteric movements of that time, wanted to create a religion that combined those two again. So the main interest of the Theosophical Society was um, the so-called Eastern or Oriental religions, such as Buddhism and Hinduism, but also other local religions. In their view, the religions of the colonized countries had once been better and higher developed as was Christianity but they had drifted away from their so-called true core. So at the beginning of the 1880s, the Theosophical Society established a new headquarters in South India and had a long and impactful relationship with Indian as well as Sri Lankan religious reform movements and also political activisms, such as the independent movements and also struggles for female suffrage. My focus in my PhD lies primarily on Sri Lanka. There, the founder of the Theosophical Society, Henry C. Alcott, became a close associate and father figure to the young Anagarika Dhammapala, who was a Buddhist reformer and is still widely known and celebrated in Sri Lanka today. Together, they and other Buddhists, and also Theosophists in Sri Lanka, they founded various schools for boys, especially Buddhist boys. Before then, the education in Sri Lanka was mainly conducted by Christian missionary schools. But in the relation to the emerging national movement and also religious reform movements, the Buddhist elite saw the necessity of Buddhist schools. In this time, both in Imperial England as well as in colonized Sri Lanka, women and especially girls were seen to be more easily corrupted by foreign religion and culture than boys or men were. 
This is why only a few or almost no girls were sent to Christian missionary schools. This is also why it took about 10 years after the Theosophical Society established the first Buddhist school for boys that they founded the Sangamata Girls School. This was in 1891. It was named after Sangamitta, which was the eldest daughter of the South Asian King Ashoka. Um, she had brought Buddhism to Sri Lanka in the second century before our times. It took also quite some time to get the acceptance of Sri Lankan parents and their trust that their daughters would not be corrupted, but educated in Buddhist ways. As a principle, they asked in the American, European and Australian theosophical newspapers for a woman teacher without prejudices for color or race and with experience in teaching. So there was Marie Musaeus Higgins, who is central to my PhD work, and she answered this call and came to the island. But after two years, she quit and founded her own school, the Musaeus School and Orphanage, which is today called Musaeus College and still exists. Notably, the first women even like to go to university at all in Sri Lanka, and also the first Sri Lankan woman to become a female doctor. And much of those who were active in the Sri Lankan women's suffrage movement, they graduated from the Museus College. The separation of girls and boys education was not special to Sri Lanka, but common in North America and Europe as well. This separation was not only a formality, but it meant that they were taught different subjects. Girls' education also focused on training the girls to become good mothers and wives. They learned embroidery, knitting, and housekeeping, and also music. And only those who stayed for the higher classes, they learned mathematics or literature on the same level as boys did. So the main argument for enhancing women's education was to make them better companions to their future husbands, as well as them being able to train their own children later on. This was then an argument which was used by anti-feminists and feminists alike. But what this shows is that education in colonial times was as much a question of gender as it was of race, class and religion. This is why only an intersectional approach can do justice to this wide field. As I look at the topic from a global as well as post-colonial perspective, I find it necessary to not fall into the trap of viewing the establishment of female education in a way that ceases as if Victorian morals and culture were taken and kind of put onto the colonized culture, because that was not the case. This is why I find it useful to apply the theories of the post-colonial scholar Deepa Chakrabarti in this instance. He said that it's dangerous to compare the history of the colonized countries with that of Europe, because the implicit point of reference in the comparison was, would always be Europe because Europe is usually seen as the origin of our modern world. So any comparison like this would consequently have to result that the compared other lacks something that Europe doesn't. So this then would conceal the fact that the history of Europe was and is entangled with the history of the so-called rest, as cultural theorist U.S. Hall has termed this. So in my case, this can actually highlight this relationship of the colonized and the colonizer. Instead of arguing that by establishing these schools, the Theosophical Society brought Victorian conceptions of gender, sexuality, and education to Sri Lanka, I am looking at the transnational entanglements of this process. I can see how the experiences in Sri Lanka changed and developed the education in the US and Britain as well. 
I think that the Theosophical Society is a great field of study in this regard because it enables me to look at transnational and transregional interactions of various types and of various people. By doing so, this can help to look differently at the binary differentiation of the colonizer and the colonized. Thank you so much for that, Jessica. That was really interesting. I really enjoyed hearing about your research. Um, just to kick off our Q&A now, can I ask you, why do you feel that your research matters and what do you feel that it adds to your field and also the field of global history more broadly? Yes, thank you for that question. I think that my research kind of brings new perspective into the histories of gender, race and religion and also their entanglement in colonial times, which is still relevant today. So especially the relationship between religion and feminism always seems to be a difficult one. So it's necessary to look at their history to kind of see the relation and see how they got developed and entangled in the same way. Um, yeah, so my own field of study is the study of religion. And herein, um, I have to say, sadly, gender hasn't been at the field of analysis, the field of analysis for a long time. So it's pretty recent. So I guess this is the biggest uh, plus point of my study here. Um, and there's one other thing that also goes into why it's necessary for global history. Because as I see it, um, like often history, histories are either bound to local or regional analysis, for example, South Asian studies, where I also come from, or in the case of the history of the empires. Um, but this is kind of like they haven't been looked at together. So my study looks at the entanglement of both. So regional and transregional, colonized and colonizer. So this can also open up new ways to look at agency and identity in these times. Mm, thank you, Jessica, that's so interesting. And this kind of leads on perfectly to my next question. What role do you feel that race plays in, in the context of your research? Yes, a race plays a really crucial role. So race is a category that was that's integral to the 19th century and um, really highly entangled with the colonial politics as well. So in my case, um, it was not only religious differentiations, but also racial ones that are the center of the arguments why someone needs education or why not, and why people should go to somewhere else to give people some education or not. So. Um, for example, as I said, um, for the principles to look for white female teachers from Europe, America or Australia. So this is also really crucial. So, but since I haven't been able to look at um, the Sri Lankan sources yet because of the pandemic, I still have to see how the reaction was because I right now I only I was only able to read the English newspapers. Mm, thank you for that. Um... I do hope that you know you'll be able to go to Sri Lanka soon to look at the sources there. Yeah. Um, and to go back to what you talked about in your presentation earlier, the Theosophical Society, and how important was this society globally? Yeah, so there's um, the importance of the Theosophical Society um, is a kind of twofold way. So, on the one hand, as I said, there were many religious reform movements at the end of the 19th century, especially in South Asia, for example, Hindu reform movements, Buddhist reform movements, and they all got um, entangled with the Theosophical Society. So they used their kind of global networks to get their message out. So this really influenced the new ways of um, those religions and how they conducted their reform work. 
And on the other hand, um, since the Theosophical Society was basically almost everywhere in the world, they also um, got information from other religions back to the so-called West. And that's the first ways how the West got informed um, about religions as Buddhism or Hinduism were through the Theosophical Society and we're still really much shaped by them. Mm, okay. And in your research, what does it mean to view colonial relations in this way? Yeah, as I said, I look at the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized a bit differently than it has been before. Um, so I can also see new forms of agency where they haven't been before. So for example, um, in my case, that it, it's not only white women that had agency, but also the colonized women that worked with them in the schools that were their teachers or their pupils. So I kind of see the interaction. So I don't, I try to avoid falling into the step of only um, seeing agency in ways that we already know of. Um, but it also kind of shows that still there were many, many, many hierarchies and also there's that kind of, you cannot see them in that hierarchical way that we are used to. So for example, there are different relationships between white women, brown man, brown woman and white man, and it's really much entangled and complicated. Um, but that's, that's kind of the result you get at looking at those entanglements in a different way. Thank you, Jessica. That's fascinating. And I feel like it's still it's still very much relevant today looking at colonial relations in that way. Um, and to go back to you mentioned Chakrabarti in your presentation earlier um, and his really interesting theories of comparing, you know, Europe to um, of the West to quote unquote the rest. And how do you feel that this applies to other parts in your field of study within the context of religion? Yeah, so um, in the study of religion, we kind of have the problem that we usually think of religion being an English term, being invented in the West, something that was transported to other parts of the world. But actually, um, this kind of takes away the agency of non-Western agents, um, because the, word, the term religion is used everywhere in the world. So we we cannot say this is a European concept or a European thing. So if I put Chakravarti, like his theories onto that issue of religion, um, I can say, okay, um, religion wasn't a thing that was already there in Europe before the 19th century. Religion was something that also in Europe um, changed a lot during the 19th century, especially through the colonial contact. So this also leads back to the result that it that we have to have in mind if we, for example, compare Hinduism to Christianity. We, we have to think of how maybe the idea that religion is something European or something that kind of came from uh, the idea of Christianity, that this also impacts the way we compare Hinduism to Christianity. So we have to be careful of that so that we, in our comparison, not automatically say Hinduism lacks something that Christianity has because it's kind of more a real or perfect religion because that's the concept we have in our mind. But think of the ways in which religion only kind of, well, was created in the 19th century. Mm, thank you, Jessica. That's really interesting. And you've certainly given me a lot of food for thought for the weekend. Um, so just to round off our Q&A now, 
can I ask what what are your future plans, um, ideally in a post-pandemic world um, and post-PhD? Yeah, so in a post-pandemic world, the first thing I'll do is go back to Sri Lanka, do my field study, do my <laughs> research and stay there for yeah as long as possible because I still need to do a lot of language work. Um, <laughs> and yeah, after my PhD, like the kinds of the ways where my research led me to are um, I had kind of two ideas in my head. So one is that one I already did for my master's and kind of to right next to what I'm doing right now is the history of eugenics and how that is also a global field and how religion plays into that and gender and sexuality and race plays into that because there has been a lot of research on eugenics in the past years, really amazing research, but also not a lot in the field of religious studies. Um, so I think there's a lot to be done there. And the other thing that I really find interesting is um, the history of Buddhist psychology. Um, this kind of mm -hmm. always pops back into my studies and it's, it, I always write it down in my notebook. Um, so it's still a kind of vague idea, but it's something that it's not as much gender and race as I'm used to, but I think there's a lot to get out from there as well. Um, yeah, and no one has done that before with that kind of, yeah, gender and racial, like lenses to look at it. So yeah, that's that might be exciting. That's amazing. That sounds like two fascinating postdoc projects right there. <laughs> if any potential funders are listening, we've got two really good projects here. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for that, Jessica. I really enjoyed listening to you talk about your research. Um, I had a lot of fun. I hope you did too. Yes, thank and... you. Thank you for having me. It was great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed producing it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can visit our website, globalhistory.org.uk, email us on scgh at dundee.ac.uk, or follow us on Twitter at uodscgh. Thank you.